hearing seven messages to seven churches here in the first part of the book of Revelation. And we will find that they are all messages to us as well, uh, not just to these ancient communities. And so we are hearing the word of that lamb whom we just sang about, speaking uh, to his people. And so would you join me in Revelation chapter 2, and I will read for us verses 1 to 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently, And bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now to come and to trust that what we've just heard is your voice speaking to us. It is your voice talking to your people, your church. And so would you help us to receive it as true, as good, as life-giving, even when it is in some ways uh, confusing and in some ways scary? Would you help us to listen, to hear Uh, Not only with our ears, but with our hearts and our lives. That we would receive the seed of your word and that it would produce fruit in us to your glory. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I get to do as a pastor is to talk with engaged couples before they get married. We do a little premarital counseling, and one of the images I use when I do premarital counseling uh, for what can happen in a marriage is the image of two trains going in the same direction, but on parallel tracks that never intersect, that never connect. Without time, without effort, without attention, a relationship can drift into that. It can drift into two people moving generally in the same direction, but not connected to each other. Uh, That instead of the intimate companionship that marriage should be, husband and wife can become roommates or business partners in managing the household. And they can lose the depth of relationship that a marriage should be. Well, Jesus refuses 
to let that happen with us. His bride. His church. He will not stand for that kind of relationship with us. You know, it's interesting, uh, this community here in Ephesus, they had received another message. They received another letter. It came from the Apostle Paul, also speaking for Jesus. And in that letter, he talks about marriage and he talks about what marriage should look like. But he also says that marriage at its best is only a hint, just a glimmer of the profound love and the profound relationship that exists between Christ, the husband, and his bride, his wife, the church. And so now, with this community in Ephesus, the husband turns to his wife and says, we need to talk. We need to talk about our marriage. We have lost our connection. You are drifting away from your love for me. And that's not just a message for the church in Ephesus. That is a message for the church in Tallahassee. And so I want to come to this text and I want to ask two questions. First of all, how do we lose our love for Jesus? And second, how do we regain, how do we recapture the love that we have lost? So first, how do we lose that Love. How does that happen? The Ephesians lost it by working very hard at a very important job. They were diligent and highly skilled fence builders, wall builders. They worked very hard at this job. They were very Diligent at this job, and it was an important one. You see, they had gotten another message from the Apostle Paul. This was before he wrote them a letter. This is in the book of Acts, where he gathers the elders of the church, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he says to them, Be on guard, be watchful, because there are wolves coming. There are wolves coming for the flock, there are teachers coming who say that they are speaking for Jesus, but in reality they corrupt His message and they promote corrupt lifestyles. So be on guard. Build fences to protect the flock. And the Ephesians took to that job. They passionately embraced that role of fence building. They were theologically well-educated, and they were morally rigorous and disciplined. They had clear eyes, and they had backbones of steel. They could see a heretic coming a mile away, and they had no problem standing up to him. They had no problem standing up for the truth, standing up for what is right, not compromising. With the world. They had no trouble drawing a boundary and passionately policing that boundary. And they did that in an extraordinarily difficult situation. In our language, 
The Ephesians were theologically and morally conservative. In one of the most spiritually and culturally liberal places in the world at that time. The city of Ephesus was a utopia of pluralism. It was a place that that was a it was a do whatever works best for you type of place or better do whatever makes the most money for you kind of place. And so it welcomed all sorts of spiritual traditions and spiritual innovations. And it said, yeah, that's cool. Bring it all. We'll throw it in the pot. And so, for example, the Nicolaitans who are mentioned in this passage were a group of people who wanted to take some of the teachings and practices of Christianity and combine them with the teaching and practices of some of the Roman fertility cults at the time who used prostitution as a part of their religious practice. And they want to put those together, and Ephesus was a place you could do that. They welcomed that. And the Ephesian church said, to their risk and to a great cost to them, they said, no. No, that is not the faith handed down to us by people like John and Paul and Apollos and Timothy. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. And they said, no, and Jesus commends them for that. He doesn't say, stop doing that. But he also threatens to remove their lampstand. He threatens to remove their status as a community that represents him. He refuses to take away their status of being a light For him. Why? What happened? Well, in policing the boundaries, they had lost the center. Policing the boundaries, they had lost the center. In all of their doing and in all of their thinking, they had lost the heart. It's the heart of the Christian faith. The heart of the Christian faith for the Ephesians and for us isn't a set of ideas to be defended. The heart of the Christian faith isn't a set of commands to be obeyed. The heart of the Christian faith faith is a person to be loved and worshipped and trusted. And in policing the boundaries, they had lost that heart. For Christ. They had lost their love for him. And they found themselves building walls. Yes. But building the walls of a prison. Instead of a home. Because see ideas are good. Commands are good. But they must always flow from and be for the sake of relationship. Boundaries are good and necessary. Walls, fences are good and necessary. But what is their purpose? Why are they there? To cultivate a home with Jesus that welcomes us and others to a closeness to him. And the Ephesians lost that. Why? They lost The purpose. 
They forgot why they got married in the first place. So Presbyterians, we need to talk. Lovers of Reformed theology, we need to talk. Because this is a particularly strong tendency in our tradition. This is a particularly, the Ephesian tendency is a particular temptation for us, for our tribe, our type of people. So I was a Presbyterian this past week, and we ordained, or we examined a candidate for ordination, a man coming to be a pastor in our denomination. He was asked one question about his Christian experience. It took about two minutes to answer that question. And then we spent hours asking him question after question after question about theology and Bible knowledge and church history and his views on controversial issues. He had spent hours with a committee doing the same. He had spent hours writing an exam doing the same. He had spent years in seminary doing the same. You see the tendency? Do you see the danger? We are known for our rigorous theology. We are known for our intellectual approach to the Christian faith. And that is good. Please hear me say that. That is good. That is not a bad thing. We should expect our pastors to know their theology, to know their Bible. That is a good thing, but it is also a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing when we forget the relational purpose. That all of that must flow from and be for the sake of a relationship between Christ and his church. A relationship that is described as the most intimate human relationship possible a marriage. So in policing the boundaries, have we lost the center? In policing the boundaries, have we lost the center? We we develop this kind of spiritual OCD where we are so obsessed with straight lines and right angles and clean surfaces that we alienate ourselves from Jesus. And you know what always happens when we do that? We also alienate ourselves from people. Because people become a set of ideas to be argued with, a set of behaviors to be managed, rather than people to be loved. And that's why the chart of Presbyterian denominations in America is like a Jackson Pollock painting. It is just chaos. It's chaos. It's not good. It's not good. It's because of this Ephesian tendency. The Ephesians kept the words of Christian orthodoxy, but lost the music of a marriage with Christ. Have we done the same? Are we in danger of doing the same? Center point, what kind of walls are we going to build here? We have to build walls. Every community has to build walls. And we are called to maintain the integrity of the gospel. 
Now hear me, the gospel, not the finer points of systematic theology, the gospel. We are called to maintain the integrity of the gospel, but in a way that builds a home, not a prison. In a way that builds a community that welcomes us and others into that truth. Into the possibility of a nearness, a closeness, an intimacy with Jesus and in Jesus with God. What kind of walls are we going to build in this community? Have we maintained the words of Christian orthodoxy and lost the music? In just a moment, we're going to sing the Apostles' Creed. One of the reasons I have us do that, I insist on us from time to time singing it, is to remind us that those words aren't just ideas. They are the avenue into a relationship with our husband, with Jesus. So what do we do? If we are in danger of that, and I think we are, I think we have to acknowledge and know about ourselves that we are in danger of that, what do we do? Is there any hope for the frozen chosen? Uh, Yeah, okay, so second question, we've talked about how you lose that love, now how do you regain it? How do you recapture that love for Christ? In each of these seven messages to the seven churches, they have a similar pattern. They all begin with Jesus identifying himself in a particular way, drawn from the vision in chapter 1 that we talked about last week. And then they all end with a promise that Jesus gives to those who will hear and respond to the message that he has spoken. So, who is Jesus for this Ephesian community that is at a distance from him? Who is he for them? Verse 1. He is the one who holds the stars in his hand, representing these communities. He is the one who walks among the golden lampstand, representing these churches. You see what he's doing? To those who are far from him, he is presenting himself as the one who is near. The one who is near to them. The one who holds And what promise does he make to them? If they will hear and respond to his message, what promise does he make? Verse 7, he says, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And that's, of course, a reference to Genesis. It's a reference to the human situation from which we all have fallen, but for which we were made. A situation in which Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And they walked with God. They lived in a profound communion with God. See what Jesus is doing? He's talking to people who have lost their love. And he gives himself to them as the one who has loved them. He reasserts his love for them past, present, and future. See, the renewal of our love won't happen with some new idea. It's not going to happen with some new experience that we've never had before. 
The renewal of our love is a return. It is a return to who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has done. What does he say to them in verse 5? He doesn't say go out, go to a retreat, go to a conference, go read another book. No, he says remember, repent, turn around, go back and do again the works you did at the beginning. Remember, repent, redo. What are those works? Well, they are the ones that we find in Acts chapter 2. They are what would have been the foundation of the Ephesian community when Jesus' presence and word showed up. How did the earliest communities respond to the word and presence of Jesus? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Jesus is saying, go back there. Go back to those simple practices that remind you of who I am, what I've said, and what I've done, and what I am doing. Go back there. It's as if he pulls out the wedding album and says, let's remember why we got married in the first place. And let's remember what helps us stay connected in our Go back. Go back to those simple habits that connect you to Christ. There's a Scottish band uh, called Frightened Rabbits, which is a great band name. And they released a song, I think this was back like 2007. And the song says, turn off the TV, it's killing us, we never speak. There's a radio in the corner that's dying to make a scene. Let's get old-fashioned, back to the way things used to be. If I get old-fashioned, will you get old-fashioned with me? That, in a sense, is what Jesus is saying to us. He's not in the sense that he's not calling us to some nostalgia for the past. He's not calling us, he's not anti-technology. That's not the point. He is calling us back to the foundations of that life with him. He is calling us to a simplification. A reduction. Back to what connects us to who he is, what he says, and what he has That's what you need. What we are doing this morning, scripture, breaking of bread, prayer, in community. That's it. That is where we find the renewal of our love for him. Not in a new technique. Not in a new idea. Not in a new crazy experience. In the simple habits that he has given to us. Scripture, prayer, sacraments, community. That's where we'll find it. And that's where we will learn to speak and live with the simplicity of Karl Barth.
Karl Barth was a major Swiss 20th century theologian. He was an incredibly complex thinker. He, uh, his systematic theology spans 13 volumes, and it was unfinished when he died. S- over 6 million words. Unfinished. But he, he gave a lecture at the University of Chicago in the late 1960s. Gave the lecture. There was a Q&A time after the lecture. Student raised his hand and says, Professor Barr, can you take that whole shelf, all of your theological project, and can you summarize it with one sentence? Barr thought for a moment, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can we speak with that simplicity? In all of our thinking, in all of our doing, can we live connected to that simple knowledge that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray.